All right, here we go. So, uh, my name is Tom Hennis. I'm a teacher. I know a lot about English. Um, I know a lot about a lot of things that have to do with teaching and project-based and interdisciplinary, experiential, all that stuff. So, I'm going to try this out where I'm going to start reading uh, Camus' The Plague. So, I'm going to try to read it chunk by chunk by chunk and see how far we get. Um, I've taught it before. I've read it before. But in these times right now, um, it seems like it's even more important just to kind of like go through and read it. And then part of that's also being able to share it with other folks as well. So this is my first time through, so the reading might be a little bit rough. It's also pretty late at night as I'm giving this a shot. Um, I think I previewed ahead. Uh, the hope is to get like 20 pages done tonight just to kind of see how it goes. So thanks for listening. The unusual events described in this chronicle occurred in 1940 at Oran. Everyone agreed that considering their somewhat extraordinary character, they were out of place there. For its ordinariness is what strikes one first about the town of Oran, which is merely a large French port on the Algerian coast, headquarters of the prefect of a French department. The town itself, let us admit, is ugly. It has a smug, placid air. You need time to discover what it makes, what it is that makes it different from so many business centers in other parts of the world. How to conjure up a picture, for instance, of a town without pigeons, without any trees or gardens, where you never hear the beat of wings or the rustle of leaves. A thoroughly negative place, in short. The seasons are discriminated only in the sky. All that tells you of a spring's coming is the feel of the air, where the baskets of flowers brought in from the suburbs by peddlers. It's a spring cried in the marketplaces. During the summer, the sun bakes the houses bone dry, sprinkles our walls with grayish dust, and you have no option but to survive those days of fire indoors, behind closed shutters. In autumn, on the other hand, we have deluges of mud. Only winter brings really pleasant weather. Perhaps the easiest way of making a town's acquaintance is to ascertain how the people in it, in it work, how they love and how they die. In our little town, is this one wonders an effect of the climate? All three are done on much the same lines, with the same feverish yet casual air. The truth is that everyone is bored and devotes himself to cultivating habits. Our citizens work hard, but solely with the object of getting rich. Their chief interest is in its commerce, and their chief aim in life is, as they call it, quote-unquote, doing business. Naturally, they don't askew such simpler pleasures as lovemaking, sunbathing, going to the pictures. But, very sensibly, they reserve these pastimes for Saturday afternoons and Sundays, and employ the rest of the week in making money, as much as possible. In the evening, on leaving the office, they foregather at an hour that never varies, in the cafes stroll the same boulevard, or take the air on their balconies. The passions of the young are violent and short-lived. The vices of older men seldom range beyond an addiction to bowling, to banquets, and socials or clubs where large sums of money change hands on the fall of a card. It will, will be said, no doubt, that these habits are not peculiar to our town, 
Really, all our contemporaries are much the same. Certainly nothing is commoner nowadays than to see people working from morn till night and then proceeding to fritter away at card tables, in cafes, and in small talk, what time is left for living. Nevertheless, there still exist towns and countries where people have now and then an inkling of something different. In general, it doesn't change their lives. Still, they have had an intimation that that's so much to the good. Oran, however, seems to be a town without intimations. In other words, completely modern. Hence, I see no need to dwell on the manner of loving in our town. The men and women consume one another rapidly in what is called, quote, an act of love, quote, or else settle down to a mild habit of conjugality. We seldom find a mean between these extremes. That, too, is not exceptional, at Iran or as elsewhere, for lack of time and thinking. People have to love one another without knowing much about it. What is more exceptional in our town is the difficulty one may experience there in dying. Difficulty, perhaps, is not the right word. Discomfort would come near. Being ill is never agreeable, but there are towns that stand by you, so to speak, when you are sick, in which you can, after a fashion, let yourself go. An invalid needs small attentions. He likes to have something to rely on, and that's the natural enough. But at Oran, the violent extremes of temperature, the exigencies of business, the uninspiring surroundings, the sudden nightfalls, and the very nature of its pleasures call for good health. An invalid feels out of it there. Think what it must be for a dying man, trapped behind hundreds of walls, all sizzling with heat, while the whole population sitting in cafes or hanging on the telephone is discussing shipments, bills of lading, discounts. It will then be obvious what discomfort attends death, even modern death, when it waylays you under such conditions in a dry place. These somewhat haphazard observations may give a fair idea of what our town is like. However, we must not exaggerate. Really, all that is to be conveyed was the banality of the town's appearance and the life in it. But you can get through the days with there without trouble, once you have formed habits. And since habits are precisely what our town encourages, all is for the best. Viewed from this angle, its life is not particularly exciting. That must be admitted. But at least social unrest is quite unknown among us our frank-spoken, amiable, and industrious citizens have always inspired a reasonable esteem in visitors. Treeless, glamorless, soulless, the town of Iran ends by seeming restful, and after a while, you go completely to sleep there. It is only fair to add that Iran is grafted onto a unique landscape, the center of a bare plateau, ringed with luminous hills and above a perfectly shaped bay. All we may regret is the town's being so disposed that it turns back its back on the bay, with the result that it's impossible to see the sea. You always have to go look for it. Such being the normal life of Iran, it will be easily understood that our fellow citizens had not the faintest reason to apprehend the incidents that took place in the spring of the year in question, and were, as subsequently realized, preventor premonitory signs of the grave events we, were a we are to chronicle. 
To some, these events will seem quite natural. To others, all but incredible. But obviously, a narrator cannot take account of these differences of outlook. His business is only to say, this is what happened. When he knows that it actually did happen, that it has closely affected the life of the whole populace, and that there are thousands of eyewitnesses who can appraise in their hearts the truth of what he writes. In any case, the narrator, whose identity will be made known in due course, would have a little claim to competence for a task like this, had not chance put him in the way of gathering much information, and had he not been, by the force of things, closely involved in all that he proposes to narrate. This is his justification for playing the part of historian. Naturally, a historian, even an amateur, always his data, personal or at second hand, to guide him. The present narrator has three kinds of data. First, what he saw himself. Secondly, the accounts of other eyewitnesses. Thanks to the part he played, he was able to learn their personal impressions from all those figuring in this chronicle. And lastly, documents that subsequently came into his hands. He proposes to draw on these records. Whenever this scene, see, whenever this seems desirable, and to employ them as he thinks best. He also proposes, but perhaps the time has come to drop preliminaries and cautionary remarks and to launch in the narrative proper. The account of the first days needs giving in some detail. Next session, section. When leaving his surgery on the morning of April 16th, Dr. Bernard Ryu, I don't know if I'm saying that right, felt something soft under his foot. It was a dead rat lying in the middle of the landing. On the spur of the moment, he kicked it to the side and, without giving it a further thought, continued on his way downstairs. Only when he was stepping out into the street did it occur to him that a dead rat had no business to be on his landing. And he turned back to ask the concierge of the building to see it to its removal. It was not until he noticed old uh, Monsieur Michel's reaction to the news that he had realized the particular nature of his discovery. Personally, he had thought presence of the dead rat rather odd. No more than that. The concierge, however, was generally outraged. On one point, he was categorical. There weren't no rats here. In vain, the doctor assured him that there was a rat, presumably dead, on the second floor landing. Monsieur Michel's conviction wasn't to be shaken. There weren't no rats in the building, he repeated. So someone must have brought one brought this one from outside. Seem youngster trying to be funny, most likely. That evening, when Dr. Ryu was standing on the entrance, feeling for the latch key in his pocket before starting up the stairs to his apartment, he saw a big rat coming toward him from the dark end of the passage. It moved uncertainly, and its fur was sopping wet. The animal stopped and seemed to be trying to get its balance, moved forward again toward the doctor, halted again, then spun around on itself with a little squeal and fell on its side. Its mouth was slightly open, and blood was spurting from it. After gazing at it for a moment, the doctor went upstairs. He wasn't thinking about the rat. That glimpse of spurting blood had switched his thoughts back to something that had been on his mind all day. His wife, who had been ill for a year now, was due to leave the next day for a sanatorium in the mountains. He found her lying down in the bedroom, resting, as he had asked her to do, in view of the exhausting journey before her. She gave him a smile. Do you know I'm feeling ever so much better, she said. The doctor gazed down at the face that turned toward him 
in the glow of the bedside lamp. His wife was thirty, and the long illness that had left its mark on his fa on her face. Yet the thought that came into Ryu's mind as he gazed at her was, how young she looks, almost like a little girl. But perhaps that was because of the smile, which effaced all else. Now try to sleep, he counseled. The nurse is coming at eleven, you know, and you have to catch the midday train. He kissed the... He kissed the slightly moist forehead. The smile escorted him to the door. Next day, April 17th, at 8 o'clock, the concierge buttonholed the doctor as he was going out. Some young scallywags, he said, had dumped three dead rats in the hall. They'd obviously been caught in traps with a very strong springs, as they were bleeding profusely. The concierge had lingered in the doorway for quite a while, holding the rats by their legs and keeping a sharp eye on the passers-by, on off chance that the miscreants would give themselves away by grinning or by some facetious remark. His watch had been in vain. But on that, I'm all right, said Monsieur, Monsieur Michel, hopefully. Much puzzled, Ryu decided to begin his round in the outskirts of the town, where his poorer patients had lived. The scavenging in these districts was done late in the morning, and it was in, as he drove his car along the straight, dusty streets he cast glances in the garbage cans aligned on the edge of the sidewalk. In one street alone, the doctor counted as many as a dozen rats deposited on the vegetable and other refuse in the cans. He found his first patient, an asthma case of long standing, in bed in a room that served as both dining room and bedroom and overlooked the street. The invalid was an old Spaniard with a hard, rugged face. Placed on the coverlet in the front of him were two pots containing dried peas. When the doctor entered, the old man was sitting up, bending his neck back, gasping and wheezing in his efforts to recover his breath. His wa wife brought the bowl of water. Well, doctor, he said, while the injection was being made, they're coming out, have you noticed? The rats, he means, the wife explained. The man next door found three. They're coming out. You can see them in all the trash cans. It's hunger. Ryu soon discovered that the rats were a great topic of conversation in that part of town. After his round of visits, he drove home. There's a telegram for you upstairs, sir, Monsieur Marcel informed him. The doctor asked him if he had seen any more rats. No, the concierge replied. There ain't been any more. I'm keeping a sharp lookout, you know. Those youngsters won't dare when I'm around. The telegram informed Ryu that his mother would be arriving next day. She was going to keep house for her son during his wife's absence. When the doctor entered his apartment, he found the nurse already there. He looked at his wife. She was in a tailor-made suit, and he noticed that she had used rouge. He smiled to her. That's splendid, he said. You're looking very nice. A few minutes later, he was seeing her into the sleeping car. She glanced around the compartment. It's too expensive for us, really, isn't it? It had to be done, Ryu replied. What's this story about rats that's going around? I can't explain it. It's certainly queer, but it'll pass. Then he hurriedly begged her to forgive him. He felt he would have looked after her better. He'd been most remiss. When she shook her head as if to make him stop, he added, Anyhow, once you're back, everything will be better. We'll make a fresh start. That's it. Her eyes were smile sparkling. Let's make a fresh start. But then she turned her head and seemed to be gazing through the car window at the people on the platform.
jostling one another in their haste. The hissing of the locomotive reached their ears. Gently, his wife, he, gently he called his wife's first name. When she looked round, he saw her face wet with tears. Don't, he murmured. Behind the tears, the smile returned, a little tense. She drew a deep breath. Now, off you go. Everything will be all right. He took her in his arms, then stepped back on the platform. Now he could only see her smile through the window. Please, dear, he said, take your... Take great care of yourself. But she could not hear him. As he was leaving the platform, near the exit, he met Monsieur Othon, the police magistrate, holding his small boy by the hand. The doctor asked him if, if he was going away. Tall and dark, Monsieur Othon had something of the air of what used to be called a man of the world and something of an undertaker's assistant. No, the magistrate replied. I've come to meet Madame Othon, who's been present who's who's bent to present her respects to my family the engine whistled these rats now the magistrate began Reed made a brief movement in the direction of the train then turned his back towards the exit the rats he said it's nothing the only impression of that moment which afterwards he would recall was the passing of the railroad men with a box full of dead rats under his arms early in the afternoon of that day when his consult consultations were beginning, a young man called on Ryu. The doctor gathered that he had called before, in the morning, and was a journalist by profession. His name was Rim Raymond Rimbard, Rimbard, short, square-shouldered, with determined-looking face and keen, intelligent eyes. He gave the impression of someone who would keep his end up in any circumstances. He wore sports types of clothes. He came straight to the point. His newspaper, one of the leading Paris dailies, had commissioned him to make a report on living conditions prevailing among the Arab population, and especially on the sanitary conditions. Rue replied that these conditions were not good. But before he said any more, he wanted to know if the journalist would be allowed to tell the truth. Certainly, Rimbar replied. I mean, Rue explained, would you be allowed to publish an unqualified condemnation of the present state of things? Unqualified? No, I couldn't go that far, but surely things aren't quite as bad as that. No, Ryu said quietly. They weren't as bad as that. He had put the question solely to find out if Rambert could or couldn't state the facts without paltering with the truth. <coughs> Excuse me. I have no use for statements in which something is kept back, he added. That is why I shall not furnish any information in support of yours. The journalist smiled. You talk the language of Saint-Just. Without raising his voice, Ryu said he knew nothing about that. The language he used was that of a man who was sick and tired of the world he lived in, though he had much liking for his fellow men and had resolved for his part to have no truck with injustice and compromises with the truth. His shoulders hunched, and Bear gazed at the doctor for some moments without speaking. Then, I think I understand you, he said, getting it from his chair. The doctor accompanied him to the door. It's good of you to take it like that, he said. Yes, yes, I understand, Rambert repeated, with what seemed like a hint of impatience in his voice. Sorry to have troubled you. When shaking hands with him, Ryu suggested that if he was out for curious stories for his paper, he might say something about the extraordinary number of dead rats that were being found in the town just now. Ah, Rambert exclaimed, that certainly in interests me. 
On his way out at five for another round of visits, the doctor passed on the stairway a stocky youngish man with a big deeply furred face and bushy eyebrows. He had met him once or twice in the top floor apartment, which was occupied by some male Spanish dancers. Puffing a cigarette, Jean Tarou was gazing down at the convulsions of a rat dying on the step in front of him. He looked up, and his gray eyes remained fixed on the doctor for some moments. Then, after wishing him a good day, he remarked it was rather odd, the way all these rats were coming out of their holes to die. Very odd, Ryu agreed. And it ends by getting on one's nerves. In a way, doctor, only in a way. We've not seen anything of this sort before, that's all. I personally find it interesting. Yes, definitely interesting. Taru ran his fingers through his hair to brush it off his forehead, looking again at the rat, which had now stopped moving, then smiled to Ryu. But really, doctor, it's the concierge's headache, isn't it? As it so happened, the concierge was the next person Ryu encountered. He was leaning against the wall beside the street door. He was looking tired, and his normally robust face had lost its color. <clears throat> yes, I know, the old man told Ryu, who had informed him of the latest casualty among the rats. I keep finding them by twos and threes. It's the same thing in other houses in the street. He seemed depressed and worried and was scratching his neck absentmindedly. Ryu asked him how he felt. The concierge wouldn't go, wouldn't, so far, wouldn't go so far as saying he was feeling ill. Still, he wasn't quite up to the mark. In his opinion, it was just due to worry. These damned rats had given him a shock-like, and it would be a relief when they stopped coming out and dying all over the place. Next morning, it was April 18th. When the doctor was bringing back his mother from the station, he found Monsieur Michel look, looking still more out of sorts. The stairway from the cellar to the attics was strewn with dead rats, ten or a dozen of them. The garbage cans of all the houses in the street were full of rats. The doctor's mother took it more quite calmly. It's like that sometimes, she said vaguely. She was a small woman with silver hair and dark, gentle eyes. I'm so glad to be with you again, Bernard, she added. The rats can't change that, anyhow. He nodded. It was a fact that everything seemed easy when she was there. However, he rang up the municipal office. He knew the man in charge of the department, concerned with the extermination of vermin, and asked him if he'd heard about all the rats that were coming out to die in the open. Yes, Mercier knew all about it. In fact, 50 rats had been found in his offices, which were near the wharves. To tell the truth, he was rather perturbed. Did the doctor think it meant anything serious? Ryu couldn't give a definite opinion, but he thought the sanitary service should take action of some kind. Mercier agreed. And if you think it's really worth the trouble, I'll get an order issued as well. It's certainly worth the trouble, Rio replied. His chairwoman had just told him that several hundred dead rats had been collected in a big factory where her husband worked. It was about the same time that our townsfolk began to show signs of uneasiness. For, from April 18th onwards, quantities of dead or dying rats were found in factories and warehouses. In some cases, the animals were killed to put an end to their agony. From the outer suburbs to the center of town, in all the byways where the doctor's duties took him, in every thoroughfare, rats were piled in garbage cans or lying in long lines in the gutters. The evening papers that day took up the matter and inquired whether the city fathers were going to tape steps and what emergency measures were contemplated to abate this particularly disgusting nuisance. Actually, the municipality had not contemplated doing anything at all. But now a meeting was convened to discuss the situation.
An order was transmitted to the sanitary service when the, to collect the dead rats at daybreak every morning. When the rats had been collected, two municipal trucks were to take them and to, to be burned in the town's incinerator. But the situation worsened the following days. There were more and more dead vermin in the streets, and the collectors had big, bigger truckloads every morning. On the fourth day, the rats began to come out and die in batches. From basements and cellars and sewers, they emerged in long, wavering files into the light of day, swayed helplessly, then did a sort of pirouette and fell dead at the feet of horrified onlookers. At night, in passages and alleyways, their shrill little death cries could be clearly heard. In the mornings, the bodies were found lying in the gutters, each with a gout of blood, like a red flower, on its tapering muzzle. Some were bloated and already beginning to rot, others rigid, with their whiskers still erect. <clears throat> Even in the busy heart of the town, you found them piled up in little heaps on landings and in backyards. Some stole forth to die, seemingly in the halls of public offices, in school playgrounds, or even on the cafe terraces. Our townsfolk were amazed to find such busy centers of the, as the Place d'Armes, the boulevards, the promenade along the waterfront, dotted with repulsive little corpses. After the daily cleanup of the town, which took place at sunrise, there was a brief respite, then gradually the rats began to appear again in numbers that went on increasingly throughout the day. People out at night would often feel underfoot the squelchy roundness of still warm bodies. It was as if the earth on which the houses stood were being purged of its secret humors, thrusting up to the surface the abscesses and pus clots that had been forming in its entrails. You must picture the consternation of our little town, hitherto so tranquil, and now, out of the blue, shaken to its core, like a quite healthy man who all of a sudden feels his temperature shoot up and the blood seething like wildfire in his veins. Things went so far that the Ronsdok Information Bureau, inquiries on all subjects promptly and accurately answered, which ran the f a free information talk on the radio by the way of publicity, began its talk by announcing that no less than 6,231 rats had been collected and burned in a single day. April 25th. Giving, it, giving, as it did an ampler, ampler and more precise view of the scene daily enacted before our eyes, this amazing figure administered a jolt to the public nerves. Hitherto, people had merely grumbled at a stupid, rather obnoxious visitation. They now realized that this strange phenomenon, whose scope could not be measured and whose origin escaped detection, had something vaguely menacing about it. Only the old Spaniard, who Dr. Yu was treating for asthma, went on rubbing his hands and chuckling, they're coming out, they're coming out, with a senile glee. On April 28th, when the Randstock Bureau announced that 8,000 rats had been collected, a wave of something like panic swept the town. There was a demand for drastic measures. The authorities were cursed of slackness, accused of slackness. People at the houses on the coast spoke of moving there. Early in the year, though, it was. But the next day, the Bureau informed them that the phenomenon had abruptly ended, and the sanitary service was only collecting a trifling number of rats. Everyone breathed more freely. It was, however, on the same day at noon that Dr. Yu was parking his car in front of his apartment house where he lived, noticed the concierge coming toward him from the end of the street. He was dragging himself along, his head bent, arms and legs curiously splayed out with jerky movements of a clockwork doll. The old man was leaning on the arm of a priest whom the doctor knew. It was Father Penelou, a learned and militant Jesuit, 
whom he had met occasionally and who was very, he thought very highly of his, who was thought very highly thought of in, a, in our town, even in circles quite indifferent to religion. Ryu waited for the two men to draw up to him. Monsieur Michel's eyes were fever bright and he was breathing wheezily. The old man explained that feeling a bit off color had he had gone out to take the air, but he had started feeling pains of all, in all sorts of places, in his neck, armpits, and groin. He had been obliged to turn back and ask Father Penelou to give him an arm. It's just swelling, as he said. I must have strained myself somehow. Leaning over the car, the doctor ran his hand over the base of Michelle's neck. A hard lump, like a knot in the wood, had formed there. Go to bed at once and take your temperature. I'll come see you this afternoon. When the old man was gone, Ryu asked Father Penlu what he had made of this queer business about the rats. Oh, I suppose it's an epidemic they've been having. The father's eyes were smiling behind his big round glasses. <clears throat> After lunch, while Ryu was reading for a second time, the telegram his wife had sent him from a sanatorium announcing her arrival, the phone rang. It was one of his former patients, a clerk in the municipal office, ringing him up. He had suffered from a long-time form of a constriction of the aorta, and, as he was poor, Ryu had charged no fee. Thanks, doctor, for remembering me. But this time, it's somebody else. The man next door has had an accident. Please come at once. He sounded out of breath. Ryu thought quickly. Yes, he could see the concierge afterwards. A few minutes later, he was entering a small house in the Rue Fadherb on the outskirts of town. Halfway up the drafty and foul-smelling stairs, he saw Joseph Grand, the clerk, hurrying down to meet him. He was a man of about 50 years of age, tall and drooping, with narrow shoulders, thin limbs, and a yellowish mustache. He looks better now, he told Ryu, but I really thought his number was up. He blew his nose vigorously. On the top floor, the third, Ryu noticed something scrawled in red chalk on the door to the left. Come in. I've hanged myself. They entered the room. A rope dangled from a hanging lamp above the chair lying on its side. The dining room table had been pushed into a corner, but the rope hung empty. I got him down just in time. Grand seemed to always have trouble in finding his words, though he expressed himself in the simplest way possible. I was going out, and I heard a noise. When I saw that writing on the door, I thought it was uh, uh, a prank. Only then I heard a funny sort of groan. It made my blood run cold, as they say. He scratched his head. That must be a painful way of doing it, I should think. Naturally, I went in. Grant had opened the door, and they, had, and they were standing on the threshold of a bright but scantily furnished bedroom. There was a brass bed stand against one of the walls, and a plump little man was lying there, breathing heavily. He gazed at them with bloodshot eyes. Rouge stopped short. In the intervals of the man's breathing, he seemed to hear little squeals of rats, but he couldn't see anything moving in the corners of the rooms. Then he went to the bedside. Evidently, the man had not fallen from a sufficient height, or very suddenly, for the collarbone held. Naturally, there was some asphyxia. An x-ray photograph would be needed. Meanwhile, the doctor gave him a camphor injection and assured him that it would be all right in a few days. Thanks, doctor, the man mumbled. When he asked Rand if he had noticed the police, notified the police, he hung his head. Well, as a matter of fact, I haven't. The first thing I thought of was to... Quite so, Ryu cut in. I'll see to it. 
but the invalid made a fretful gesture and sat up in bed. He felt much better, he explained. Really wasn't worth the trouble. Don't feel alarmed, Ryu said. It's a little more than a formality, anyhow. I have to report this to the police. Oh, the man slumped back on the bed and started sobbing weakly. Grand, who had been twiddling his mustache while they were speaking, went up to the bed. <clears throat> Come, Monsieur Cotard, he said. Try to understand. People could say the doctor was to blame if he took it into your head to have another shot at it. Qatar assured him cheerfully that there wasn't the least of risk of that. He had had a crazy sort of fit, but it just passed, and all he wanted now was to be left in peace. Ryu was writing a prescription. Very well, he said. I'll say no more about it for the present. I'll come and see you again in a day or two, but don't do anything silly. On the landing, he told Ground that he was obliged to make a report, but would ask the police inspector to hold up the inquiry for a couple days. But somebody should watch Qatar tonight, he added. Has he any relations? Not that I know of, but I can very well stay with him. I can't say I really know him, but one's got to help a neighbor, hasn't one? As he walked on the stairs, Ryu caught himself glancing into the darkest corners. He'd asked Grant if the, about the rats, if they'd disappeared in this part of town. Grant had no idea. True, he'd some, heard some talk about rats, but never paid much attention to gossip like that. I have other things to think about, he added. Ryu, who was in a hurry to get away, was already shaking his head. There was a letter to write to his wife, and he wanted to see the concierge first. News vendors were sharing the latest news, that the rats had disappeared. But Ryu found his patient leaning over the edge of the bed, one hand pressed to his belly and the other to his neck, vomiting pinkish bile into a slop pail. After retching for some minutes, the man lay back again, gasping. His temperature was 103. The ganglia of his neck and limbs were swollen, and two black patches were developing on his thighs. He now complained of internal pains. It's like fire, he whimpered. That bastard's burning me inside. He could hardly get the words through his fever-crusted lips, and he gazed at the doctor with bulging eyes that his headache had suffered with, had suffused with tears. His wife cast an ancient look at Ryu, who said nothing. Please, doctor, she said. What is it? It might be almost anything. There's nothing definite as of yet. Keep him on a light diet and give him plenty to drink. The sick man had been complaining of a raging thirst. On returning to his apartment, Ryu rang up his colleague, Richard, one of the leading practitioners in the town. No, Richard said. I can't say I've noticed anything exceptional. No cases of fever with local inflammation? Wait a bit. I have two cases with inflamed ganglia. Abnormally so? Well, Richard said, that depends on what you mean by normal. Anyhow, that night the porter was running a temperature of 104, and in delirium, always babbling about them rats. Ryu tried a, fixation, a, tried a fixation abscess. When he felt the sting of the turpentine, the old man yelled, These bastards. The ganglia had become larger still and felt like lumps of solid fibrous matter embedded in the flesh. Mademoiselle Michelle had completely broken down. It's probably Madame Michelle had completely broken down. Sit up with him, the doctor said, and call me if necessary. The next day, April 30th. The sky was blue and slightly misty. A warm, gentle breeze was blowing, bringing with it the smell of flowers from the outlying suburbs. The morning noises of the streets sounded louder, gayer than usual. For everyone in our little town, to this day, bought the promise of a new lease on life. 
Now the shadow of fear under which they had been living for a week had lifted. Ryu, too, was in an optimistic mood. We went out to see the concierge. He had been cheered up by a letter from his wife that had come with the first mail. Oh, Mr. Michelle's temperature had gone down to 99, and though he looked very weak, he was smiling. He's better, doctor, isn't he? His wife inquired. Well, it's a bit too early to say. At noon, the sick man's temperature shot up abruptly to 104. He was in constant delirium and had started vomiting again. The ganglia in his neck were painful to the touch. The old man seemed to be straining to hold his head as far as possible from his body. His wife sat at the foot of the bed, her hands on the counterpane, gently clasping his feet. She gazed at Ryu imploringly. Listen, he said, we'll have to move to the hospital and try a special treatment. I'll ring it for the ambulance. Two hours later, the doctor and Madame Michelle were in the ambulance, bending over the sick man. Rambling words were issuing from his gaping mouth, thickly coated now with sores. He kept on repeating, them rats, them damn rats. His face had gone livid, a grayish green. His lips were bloodless. His breath came in sudden gasps. His lips spread out by the ganglia, embedded in the berth as if he were trying to bury himself in it, or a voice from the depths of the earth were summoning him below. The unhappy man seemed to be stifling under his some unseen pressure. His wife was sobbing. Is there any hope left, doctor? He's dead, said Ryu. And that's where we'll end for today. So we'll try to pick this up tomorrow. Um, again, we got about 20 pages in.